Welcome to Early Learning Journeys. Jeff Johnson here with my co-host Tamar Jacobson. Tamar, how are you doing? I'm doing great this morning. The sun is shining and it's freezing, but it's lovely. It's a beautiful day. As our first episode, we've got our we've got our first guest sitting in the wings. We're going to bring her in in a second. Um, well, let's bring her in now. Lisa Murphy is going to Hello. be our first guest. Um, before we peel the banana that is Lisa Murphy, she might be an onion. There might be a lot of layers to Lisa <laughs> Murphy. I thought maybe we could spend a couple minutes just talking about the format of the show, uh, what we're up to here since this is the first one. I had the idea for this show out on a walk with my hounds, the idea of interviewing interviewing early learning people about their professional journeys. And uh, my, my first thought for a co-host was Tamar, because the, the time we've spent uh, uh, with her as a guest on the Child Care Bar and Grill podcast, I found her, her questions and comments and insights very, very uh, telling and enjoyable. And I thought it would be, I thought she'd be a good detective helping, uh, helping uh, take apart our guests and find out what makes them tick and, and how their journeys have progressed. And and um, for for I don't know what reason she was up to the up to the challenge and uh, and here we are. So tomorrow, what are you thinking about the show and where we're going to go and what we're going to accomplish with it? Yeah, well, actually, why I was up uh, for the challenge is that I've been thinking a lot about the why people get into the profession of early childhood education, and uh, a little bit of the the kind of just personal research I've been doing when, in talking to people over the years and in workshops and so forth, there's a, there's a number of reasons that come out to me. And it's, so it's intriguing, the whole, the whole idea. I don't want to say what, my, what the findings are for me because I'd like people to talk about their own, uh, why they, their own reasons why they got into the profession. Um, but I do think it's a very interesting question to ask people it's not an easy profession and it's not well paid and uh, not highly regarded by society so it's um it, it's got to be some kind of service for the community self-sacrifice or i don't know what i don't know what the other reasons could be or maybe i have some idea but anyway yeah uh, <laughs> So that's it. so I was really excited by the idea. Well, and, and I think the show will, will one. It's going to help us capture a little bit of the profession's history. The early learning profession has been, in my experience, um, kind of inept at capturing its own history and documenting its own past. And so I, there's something that uh, that resonates with me about capturing the stories of individuals. That kind of oral history is going to be valuable. But I also think, you know, we humans love stories and we learn from other people's stories. And so I think people people who are on different places in their professional journeys will maybe find insights and and uh, ideas from other people's stories that are going to help them along their path. So I think I think those two things are going to be a big part of this. Um, we reached out to Lisa as our first guest because, uh, I, I mean, cards on the table, we needed a guinea pig. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. And that's always me. Always say yes. Always yeah. say yes, unless somebody's about to get hurt. And <laughs> and I, and I knew Lisa was going to be an easy touch and would say yes. And and the other thing is I've spent close to or over 300 hours recording the Child Care Bar and Grill podcast with her. So I know a lot of Lisa's story, but I've never kind of heard the whole story all at once. Or or if I did, it was after podcasting when we were sitting around the fire pit at my house talking and and uh, and the, the night ended up got, got getting so long that I, I kind of forgot the last half of the story or something. So this time we're going to we're going to 
going to commit it to tape. Um, let's let's jump in, Lisa. You can where where do we start with Lisa Murphy's early childhood well, journey? On. Well, I, I'm I'm assuming you guys have done some kind of prep work. But, eh, not really. Um, <laughs> um, I will say that um, in my brain, this was, I don't want to sound like I'm downplaying, but it was like, oh, it's just another podcast, right? Just another thing. But obviously my subconscious went on to overdrive because I had dreams all last night about like little nuggets from way back in the early day. And in fact, I almost messaged both of you this morning and said, I need a game delay because like just 30 minutes because I'm right, dude, I'm not joking. I know our listeners can't see it. I wrote six pages this morning as I woke up this morning of like things that, not that I had forgotten, but like the pre-ooey-gooey years, so to speak, like the real beginning uh-huh. of everything. And um, so I was like, well, this way I, I feel somewhat like I did some homework. So I, <laughs> I didn't know how you were wanting to start let's well, start I, oh go ahead i wanted i, I just wanted <laughs> i was going to say take a moment to reflect on how and why you chose the profession but i see that you've taken six pages of moments well i think like a lot of people it was um you know a, a series of events right i mean a, a lot of all of our listeners anyway from childcare barn girl i mean they they're probably sick of the dallas story and listening to the mary story and i think there's still stories that need to be told um especially kind of right now the reminder of the connection piece and what if today was their only day so i i always like to kind of put an asterisk of that you know the stories that i tell as to why i do this work are are 100% accurate right that's not ah. just something that you say on on stage go on but that's but that's not my question you're right what my question is how, why did you choose the profession of early childhood before that because i wanted to give back what mary gave me when i was three years old that's that's the point yeah so tell, no, tell, no, us about saying... that. tell us about mary oh my gosh um she she created a place where you could be a little kid. She opened Mary's nursery school in 1952 in Livermore, California. And I went there in the early seventies. As a child. As a, as child. a child. Yeah. I was three years yes. old. And, yes. and I remember that first day, like it happened this morning. And I mean, I tell that story to thousands of people a year and try to get them to realize not get them to realize that's not my job my job is to paint the picture your job is to have your own reaction to it or response to it of just how powerful one day one interaction can be but so before you became a a a presenter and a speaker and a writer you were in a in in the field you were doing early childhood i was giving back what mary gave me oh yeah i was in the classroom for forever um before all of that happened. And I think that's what my, my subconscious was on overdrive last night, kind of remembering that, you know, I mean, I mean, my, my history of working with children honestly goes back to like when I was born, I mean, as the oldest of five and my mom did family childcare, you know, so I was always surrounded by the, the, the minding of other people's children and unlike some people who grow up in a somewhat family childcare kind of home, like my sister, like resented it. 
but I didn't like, I didn't mind. I didn't, you know, and that's a pretty common sidebar to that. You know, a lot of people who grow up in a family childcare home or, you know, they either like get it or they just loathe it. And um, I can't speak to that because I was on the other group, right? I didn't mind it. I didn't mind changing the diapers. I didn't mind holding the babies. I didn't mind tending to them. Um, and, and I think I grew up with that. I mean, it was just a part of it. I mean, I'm even, even off topic, but I guess kind of on topic, my mom was doing family childcare and my sister, no, my brother had to get rushed to the hospital in the middle of the night. And my mom woke me up and said, you know, the babies are going to be here at six. You know, you're not going to school today. And you know, that happened. You? And yeah. I was a junior in high school <clears throat> and I didn't go to school for a week. Um, and I mean, like stuff like that, like just that giving nature, the, and the responsibility piece of it too, to be trusted. Um, I mean, I remember my boyfriend at the time, my, he would, he went to, well, I went to the all girls school. He went to the public school and he would stop by Mercy High School and pick up my books and my assignments and my homework and would bring them to the house. And, you know, and I was, I was like the little domestic duty, you know, like I was making dinner for everybody. So I was keeping the household running with the family childcare and with our own siblings. My mom ended up being in the hospital for a week with my brother. And then it happened again, like, like not long after, but this time my mom was in the hospital, same kind of thing, middle of the night. And this time though, like the first time I was like super martyr, right? I'm like, no, I got dinner. That's cool. I can do this all myself. Look at me. I'm so responsible. The second time it happened, people are like, can we bring you dinner? I'm like, yep. <laughs> can we come help? Yep. <laughs> do you need help? Yep. <laughs> so I, I learned, but then, you know, th- so that so, was- So there was never a time between that and becoming an early childhood uh, carer let's put it yeah. that way, or, or care, care and education, education person. Um, was there never a time that you would have rather done something else? Well, so in high school, I have, I have, I knew you were going to go here. So, you know, I've, I, 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 I was a theater kid, right? So I was always I'd singing, dancing. I was always doing this since the t- three, four, five years old. I was always involved in that kind of stuff, a showman or so to speak, did high school drama, did all the community theater, all of that. Um, but always kind of had this asterisk of like disclaimer that I wanted to pursue. I wanted to use theater with kids. Right. So there was always that caveat. Right. It was. And and for a while, I was uh, very immersed in the deaf and hard of hearing culture. And uh, for a while, I wanted to be an attorney, I thought, maybe for that particular community, maybe be a, a speech language pathologist. Um, and anyway, dabbled. So I was thinking, you know, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? But I ended up going to, uh, I auditioned for the Goodman School of Drama, the theater school at DePaul University and got in. So I went to theater school for my bachelor. I started a bachelor's in fine arts, BFA in theater at DePaul in Chicago, but always, always with this kind of disclaimer, right? Like I'm doing this so I can bring it into the classroom or I'm doing this so I can do theater with kids. So there was always this. And, and, and I, I find it funny in retrospect that I uh, thought that acting was something that you needed to go to school to be prepared for, but yet it never crossed my mind to pursue training in early childhood. Like that, it didn't even enter into my brain. So the theater school was very, very, um, not elite, like in a snotty way, but you had to be invited back every year. Like you, you, you never, it wasn't an automatic given. So I was invited back first year and second year 
but I was not invited back for the third year. And I honestly think, well, probably the real reason was because I really wasn't that good, honestly. But because um, I was, I think I was always wanted to be like the character actress. You know, I was like, you know, I was like the character and I'm like, 19, you know, I, they'll hire a 54 year old to play a 54 year old. They're not going to hire a 19 year old, you know, so I don't think I, I was coming into my own and that's a whole other conversation. But I also, during the first and second year, I started doing kid gigs. I was walking kids to school. I was picking kids up after school and walking them home. I had, um, I call them, I called them like kid jobs, like in between classes. I had like regular families. Like I had my Monday, Wednesday, Friday family. I had my Friday night family, my Saturday night family. And I think what happened is I started honestly getting more interested in my kid gigs than in my schoolwork and in my studies and in learning my lines. And so when I didn't get invited back for the third year, to me, it was like, oh, that's okay. I'll stay at DePaul and I'll go into the education school and I'll finally study being a teacher. Now, and- we got to push pause here for a second. Okay. I, 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 got a, I got a question about Mary. You, you said you, you got into this partly because you want to give back what you, what you got from Mary. Oh did you have that realization when, when did you figure this out when you were like five? Obviously not. Cause you, or, well, or was it in the when back I of was, your mind then, or. Well, when I was, um, before we moved from California to New York, cause I've bounced all over, but before we moved, Mary invited me to be, uh, like a, uh, a, an, an assistant. So the summer's before we moved to New York, like my summers of being like eight, nine, 10, we're all back at the school. We're all back at Mary's nursery school. And, you know, I just remember wanting to have a place like that. Mm-hmm. And I have a piece of paper. It's, it, it's in storage, but I drew out, I was probably 10 or 11. I drew like a very crude architectural layout, like, you know, bird's eye looking down into the building, not the front of the house, but like looking where the rooms are and the toilets and stuff. I drew one and I wrote on it, we are learning through adventure at Lisa's nursery school. I was 10, 11 and I was drawing the school. Well, learning through adventure ended up becoming the company's first name. I mean, learning through adventure company, it was the first initial name of, of what we put together. Um, but everybody called it ooey gooey, but that's, I'm getting way ahead of the story. But so, Lisa, but, yeah. Have you ever had any regrets about the acting school? Oh, hell no. No, <laughs> not at all. And, and actually to that, um, it had come on my radar about three or four years ago that there's actually some people who are, who apparently are studying the, the impact of theater people in early childhood settings. Cause there does seem to be a pattern of um, more flexibility that often actors bring to a classroom, a more of a yes sense. So, you know, I, I really do think that um, it was not in any, oh no, no, I loved it. It would totally prepared me. But I mean, I've been like that since I was little, right? But what, what I do find interesting specific to the theater piece though, is that a lot of us as theater people, we like the limelight, like we like the, the light on us. And what's interesting is that that personality piece or that characteristic, or characteristic that need doesn't follow me in the classroom. And I'm not going to lie to you. I love being on stage, talking to people. I love the lights. I love, I mean, I really do believe if there is a heaven, it's just a big backstage with those big lights and it smells like grease paint. And, and I, I love the, that whole thing. 
but to me, the stage has become like the, the way to share the knowledge, not like a, hey, look at me, I'm up on stage, but this is the platform that I am the most effective of sharing what I know or my story or the joy or like I've always seen myself as a conduit. Once I made the shift from being in the classroom to, to doing workshops and writing, I see myself as a pass-through, that it's my job to just get, to put stuff out there for people that they might decide that they can use that to be more effective in whatever their role is with working with children and families. Can, so can before we, what, oh, go ahead. Well, that's why I, I always say, you know, I, in the, and in the book, I call it a detour that I had a, a, a brief detour in the theater world before, you know, kind of catapulting myself or what's the thing they throw the, 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 um, what's the thing that the thing that you throw it and it comes back to you. A boomerang, a boomerang. I boomerang back to, uh-huh. you know, where I always should have been, but along the way, you know, I, I gathered up all this other technique and knowledge and ability that I totally have plugged into both in the classroom and and in the speaking. Yeah. Before we, before we pick up again with 19, 20 year old in college, Lisa, I want to go back to, to my favorite, one of my favorite formative Lisa Murphy stories. Um, talk to me about babysitting and the keys. Um, oh, a lot yeah. of people have heard that story and tell, you know, tell whatever version of it you want, because I think this is a real, a real telling, telling story in the Lisa Murphy journey. Well, and I made a list of some of the people who along the way have been influential. So, you know, I was the neighborhood babysitter, you know, like probably many of our listeners, and that was fine. And I had a regular family. She lived three doors down. Her name was Carol Brandt. And um, so she was, she had me over because I had not yet babysat for her or her children yet. And she brought me to her house and I'm like, you know, what, 12, 13. And she's like, you know, come on in. And she starts giving me a tour. And she takes me in the kitchen and she shows me where, you know, where everything is. She shows me where the fire extinguisher is that she had in the kitchen. She's taking me, I mean, and I'm, I, I mean, I remember thinking like, you know, dude, just where's the chips? Like, just how do we turn the TV on and where are the snacks? And she is showing me everything, how to lock the door, da, 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 da. She, and, and that was so the, ba- the downstairs, then we, she takes me on a tour of the basement. She shows me, you know, how to work the washer and dryer. And I'm like, good Lord, like this is overkill. We go upstairs and she, (laughs) this part, I'll never forget. She took a baby doll and she showed me how to theoretically wrap up her infant and throw the baby out the window in case there was ever a fire, like how to do that without killing the baby. And now I'm like, holy crap, you know, like what's going on? I'm like, so all of this, and she's like very calm, cool, collected. I mean, that was just her style anyway. I mean, she was just so cool. And, And anyway- uh, she was all put together. And so the tour ended and we go sit in her dining room, her formal dining room. And she essentially looked at me and said, you should be so lucky in a, in a loving way. You should be so lucky that I would consider you to mind my children when I'm not around because I would not let anybody take care of my children if I would not also give them a key to my house and a key to my car. And at that point, she slid across the table a key to their home. And she said, and would you get your driver's license? You'll have a key to my car. And that has stuck with me since then. I mean, that, Why? that's a... That's Why? A, Why? Unpack that. Because of how trusting that is. I'm 13. 
and you're giving me a key to your home and not just, you know, just symbolically, like it was like, here you go. You are now a part of that, that circle. You're you are now a trusted person. And I have used that so many times. I mean, it's a big part of my message. If you wouldn't give somebody the key to the house or the key to the car, how the hell could you let me watch your baby, but not drive your truck? So it meant a lot to you in the sense that she would trust you with, your, the, with her children or, or was it something very affirming for you? Like, my gosh, somebody trusts me with their children. Oh yeah. Well, I think the, the symbolic nature of showing that the, the children, in not so many words, but that her children are the most important thing and that like a car would be trivial you know, access to my home, that's nothing. Like, cause you wouldn't get that if like, like that has to come first. Like it's this implied sense of being trusted with these things that, that I think all too often we flip it, right? And we think that the, the $80,000 Suburban somehow is, is more worthy of protection than the children. Yes, and your, the professional you of today understands that to the core. Oh, but when when you were thirteen and she entrusted you personally, oh, it made me children. feel like an adult. It made me feel like a grown up, right? It made me feel like, wow, <laughs> this lady would let me drive her car if I knew how to do it. What was there ever a moment where the the devil Lisa was sitting on the one shoulder, thinking, "Oh, we're gonna have a party here when they're out of town"? No, Never for a second. But, but you know, You're such honestly, a good girl. that. That was not, that was that not you. my that the way. You, that was the way Lisa Murphy rolled. That was not the way Lisa Murphy rolled. No, not Which at all. Which is probably why you got the key in the first place. Probably why I was asked to initially be the one girl in the neighborhood who was allowed to, because there were other girls in the neighborhood who were not invited to come on that. So you want to be my babysitter tour. <laughs> and, and, and this sounds like a woman who did her due diligence before, uh, before sitting you down at the kitchen, ta- at the dining room table. Oh, I'm sure she was that person. She was, she, she was a mentor to me in other areas. I mean, that's what kind of opened the door, um, having access to her and her family, um, um, turned into her being uh, a, a, a mentor to me of like a, a young, a blossoming adult, so to speak. Like she was the woman who taught me that your nylon should never be darker than your shoes. You know, she was the one who taught me stuff like that, you know, like how to so, put on makeup in, you know, that. Yeah. So, so people along the way, I, I, I always call it the kindness of strangers for, for me that saved my life. Um, have been very important to you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you, you um, said you made a list of them. I did. And um, so Mary, Mary is obviously on the list. Carol Brandt is is on the list. Um, Does she know? Um, yeah, she did. And um, she died about three years ago. And oh. Um, oh, sorry. it's funny, almost, almost, actually, I think almost all of the women who are on my list are, are, are dead now. Um and over the summer, uh, this past summer, when I was a part of some of the online conferencing, and, and th- this is, I'm just giving some backstory here, but there was a, a lot of, um, I, I talked about the keys to the house and the keys to the car, because it is a part of my, my message, right? It's a part of the right. spiel. It's a part of the talk that I do all the time. And I think some of it literally got lost in translation. And I, I, I was, um, it pissed me off. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I felt like, 
her memory was being defiled, um, that people were somehow interpreting that in a negative way. And so I, I, uh, I did a, a video kind of clarifying and gave the backstory. And it was the first time that I really had publicly shared where that came from, right? The context of that. And uh, it was seen by the kids, by the two kids that I used to babysit by Stephen and uh, um, Kristen. And, and they cried. And then Carol's sister ended up seeing it. Like they all then forwarded it to their family as some kind you know, a, paying homage to their mom and their sister and their, their relatives. And, and that, that, that felt good. Like I could, I could give some of that back, but do, mostly. Do, do, do you think it's important that we, we remember to stand on the shoulders of those who came before us? I think, I think once you realize you're doing it, it's important to acknowledge it. Um, I think for a while I was expected to acknowledge all of these folks who paved the way, but I wasn't really sure who they were. So it felt kind of fake. It has you know, to be personal. It, well, I think it has to be orga- or organic and authentic, yeah. right? When yeah. I started seeing the connections, then I started acknowledging them. But, you know, I, I can't pretend like I'm seeing stuff, you know, right. you know, uh, I mean, you can kind of see it, but like, did you? No, but somebody's saying I should. And, and I'm like, I, I, I don't see it. But, but when I did, and, and I remember there was a shift in my career where all of a sudden it was like, oh, I got that from that person. I kind of had forgotten that I got that from that person. So once, once I was started making the connections, you're like, I was always named, not, not name dropping, but you know what I mean? And this was taught to me by, you know, Sharon Kroll taught me that creative teachers are not born. They're made by the teacher next door. Whereas maybe before I was just saying it and but hadn't necessarily. Yeah, but that's kind of different from really touching your soul like this uh, uh, woman did. Oh, well, true. Yeah, right? Carol, Carol, Carol touched my soul. I had no... Right. I, I, that that's been forever. I mean, I, and, and that was always acknowledged, you know, that this came, I was told this, this is where that came from. You're 13. So is it important to touch children's souls? But again, I think that you do it indirectly. I don't think Carol Brandt sat down and said, today I'm going to make a lifelong impact on Lisa Griffin. <laughs> and then you checked know, it check, off of her checked check. it off of her list later in the day. Right. And I think that's I think that's the piece of of the puzzle. Not, not that it's a puzzle, but I think a lot of what I do, I can't speak for others, is to set the stage without overusing the theater analogy. But I mean, that's what I do. I mean, I don't really consider myself a teacher. And, and it was not too long into my teaching career where I stopped calling myself a teacher, um, at least amongst people in the profession. People outside of the profession, sometimes it's just quick and I'm a teacher, right? And you just get on with your day or the conversation. But within the people in the field of early childhood education, I started calling myself a facilitator early on. I, I, I really broke up early with the mug jug. I'm here to fill your brain with knowledge. Like I broke up early with that. I don't know if I remember making a choice, but I've always been, my focus is the environment and it always has been setting the stage for children to come in and explore, to have interactions with people, interactions with stuff, others with others, 
So setting the stage to me has always been the priority. Was was that something you were getting when you switched over from those theater classes to the child development or whatever? Was that the message you were getting in those classes or or were they tre- teaching you something different? Well, quite honestly, at DePaul, Sister Frances Ryan, who is another woman on the list of, of people who've impacted, um, I was actually told, I hope this doesn't sound like a snot, so I spent one year at DePaul in the education program and then kind of had the equivalent of a like panic attack and left and went back to California, moved back home and started up at Cal State Fullerton, which is where I finished. Anyway, Sister Frances Ryan, as well as the first professor that I had at Cal State Fullerton when I was still in child development because I changed, right? They were like, I hope you enjoyed acting school because none of these credits count. So that was that was a whole other interesting barrel of monkeys. But anyway, I was always told that I was not, I did not bring, I, I, I was not designed to be a frontline caregiver. I was told by numerous professors, this is going to sound horrible guys, that, that I had, that, that I had more to give. And I think no, about that. That doesn't sound horrible. It sounds like how society views our profession. <laughs> it, it was. And I have you know, little anecdotes about that. But I was always told, Sister Frances Ryan said, you need to be a developmental psychologist. She really, um, uh, she really thought that I should be on a career track to be a play therapist. When I moved back to California, I was in the child development department. And they said the same thing. They're like, you, you're bringing more to the table. And I didn't really know what that meant. And so I transferred to the human services department and I ended up getting my undergrad in human services and counseling, which quite honestly, I use more than any child development degree. So to Jeff's question specifically, no, I didn't get taught that where I learned it was when I started, I I mean, self-initiative, right? Cause that's me. I started cause you could do this back then calling random schools and asking if I could hang out. Can I hang out? Can I watch? Can I observe? And they would let you do it. And along the way in Huntington Beach, Kitty Lowry, another woman who was a huge influential mentor. I don't know if I'd use that word with all of these women, but that's what we think of. um, Learned a lot. I learned from the peripheral people that was around that same time that, um, you know, I, I, I saw Bev Boz for the very first time, you know, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. You know, I started actually working in various classrooms at that time and I started taking cues. I think that was the impetus for starting to take cues from the children. I mean, I distinctly, I mean, I used to, I lived in Huntington Beach. I was dating my now ex first husband, Tom, and he was the air traffic controller and we were all getting transferred to San Diego. So I'm in Huntington Beach getting ready to move to San Diego And I started interviewing for jobs because I'm thinking I'll have my job already set. I was driving a hundred (laughs) miles one way to Huntington beach to work in El Cajon. And I, and I was closing teacher, right? All that stupid bullshit hierarchy stuff, right? I'm the close, I'm the closer teacher because I'm the newest teacher. I have no experience at this point. And I was put in this room for three hours with all the kids, right? Cause they're just waiting to be picked up. It was like a freaking holding tank. And I remember plugging in, like I had no tools in my tool belt. I'm plugging into like acting stuff. We're doing like movement stuff. We're doing improv stuff. And about two weeks into it, one of the kids looked at me and says, this is stupid. You do this every day. Is this all we do here? And I was like, shit. And I remember thinking, I got to change something up. And 
so I went home and made, drove a hundred miles home, made huge batches of Play-Doh, got blocks, brought them in for my job as the closer. The co-teacher said, we don't do Play-Doh in the closing room. And I'm like, we do now. And I think (laughs) that was where I started. I think that's where I started cutting my teeth on the advocacy piece, on the pushing back piece, on the like why piece and on the, you got to take your cues from the kids. You have to set the environment up though. So it's relevant and meaningful to the kids who are here for three hours. So how, how did that go? Did you in fact start doing, uh, continue to do Play-Doh? I was actually let room? go from that position shortly thereafter. <laughs> and that, that started the, uh, the small short list of jobs Lisa Murphy has been fired from. <laughs> But I then, and I landed after that into the school, also in San Diego, where I totally started the real evolution of, of probably taking those real first steps to what, what has led me to today. I mean, that's where I met Cindy. Um, you know, the, the original poopy face that I talk about was all at that school. Cindy was at that school. Um, that's where I really started dare I say, blossom, grow. I mean, really, I really started to do the reflection work, the self-investigative piece of, you know, what do I really believe in, you know, and, and along, and that's where to me, although I had jobs before that job, that's where I think, you know, that was the real starting spot. Is that important? I think it's important to know. Self-reflection. Oh, 100%. I don't think we do enough of it. And, and I, I, so for you I in agree. practice, what's that, what did that look like, that self-reflection? Was that a real time in the classroom or is that in the commute home you're, you're doing I that reflection? I think it was the commute. Or? It was definitely the commute home. Um, uh, for any listener that might be familiar with the, with the San Diego kind of geography, um, I had to drive up the 15 freeway um, and, and then we moved. Anyway, we, I was always moving for a while, but, but I mean, I had a 45-minute commute and I, I used to say that I wrote – all of these, all the books, all the workshops, all those seeds got planted while I was commuting from, uh, from like the San Diego area up to Murrieta and Temecula. I mean, all of that. I would talk to the steering wheel, all the process. I have, I have binders and file cabinets full of initial notes of just putting it all. I had no idea what, what was going to happen with any of it, but it all, it started then. It started so- noticing. What was there any, and I pretty much know the answer to this, was there in, in the paid part of the job, was there any, any time or space for that kind of professional reflection? No, not at all. Not at all. And in fact, it wasn't really until I did family childcare, right. Which was shortly after this particular school, um, that, that there was time to do that. And the, and, and, and it's interesting to reflect now on how that transpired, right? So I'm in my home, I have 12 children, I have an assistant, and because we're now putting into practice what now I would call a 100% play-based program, I had time within it because I'm not worried about staying on some kind of random bullshit schedule. We're eating when we're hungry. Now, did a pattern emerge? Of course a pattern emerges. I mean, patterns emerge in any kind of group situation and any kind of group environment. But within it, because I'm now noticing that that the children are engaged in the space for three hours, I can sit down and read a book. I can read an article. I can jot down what I'm observing. And that's where the playbook ended up getting written was, I mean, that's when I started to notice the seven things. I mean, now, I mean, that's a big part of what I'm out there talking about. 
And that all came out of having time to pay attention to what I'm noticing with these children. What, what sparked for you, Lisa, moving from working in somebody else's program to start in your own? Because that, that seems like a big leap. And, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things I, I, I really like to focus in on is those scary moments where we make choices. Was this a scary moment for you or is this like it's the obvious, this is what's next? Um, no, I think it maybe was a little bit of both. I mean, and I probably, I want to spend a second here. We've, um, I want to, I want to pull back the veil on something that is a truth in our profession that often doesn't get spoken about. My at the time husband was an air traffic controller. Okay. Um, you don't need to know they make a lot of money. I was in a very unique position that I was able to take that leap. I knew, you know, I didn't need, I didn't have mouths to feed. It was us. It was just the two of us. We didn't have kids. I was able to, to take that leap. And I think that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if he had a different job, would I have been, you know, I mean, I, I distinctly remember sitting in the parking lot. Of, I don't even remember where we were, but I was like, but babe, what if nobody comes? What if nobody signs up? And he looked at me, he's like, so then you do something else. I mean, it was just very much like the school had taken me. I didn't have this language then, but it was, it's hindsight. It's what, what, what had happened. The school that I was at had taken me as far as they were going to be able to take me. I was at that point of my career. I'm asking a lot of questions. You know, I was asking the questions, but Cindy was getting in trouble for me asking the questions. Nothing was going to change. You know, the, this 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 young blossoming teacher is not going to change the paradigm at this existing establishment. And I realized that. And so instead of beating my head against the wall, I was like, well, what am I going to do? I had prior to this subbed around, I had known other places. And I'm like, I don't know of any place that's aligned with these new blossoming ways of wanting to work with children and set up an environment. So I'm going to do family childcare. And so that that was the leap there. Was it scary? Sure. But I think at the time it was probably more ego. You know, what if you announce you're opening a program and nobody wants to be a part of it? Yeah. And of course it was the complete opposite. Like what year was this? Well, we weren't married yet. So before maybe 94, 93. And yeah. so people did show up. They did. They did. They showed up. And of course, you know, they, sh they, then, then there were grumblings in the community that I was going to get slapped with a lawsuit. And I'm like, you have 200 children. You're threatened by a person who can have 12, you know, like what's up with that? Like maybe, maybe that's some information for you that this many people are wanting to now run and escape from what's going on there. You know, maybe, maybe as an owner, that's something for you to reflect on in regard to, you know, what happened? You know, why are you really, you're threatened by, by this? Hmm. Maybe that's a sign that something's not right. And, and what's going on over here. Um, but yeah, that, that was pretty awesome. How, and it, how do you, how do you feel about where you are now in your, in your, in your, um, profession? Okay. Well, that's an interesting 2020 lens question. So, um, mm -hmm. most of the listeners know that I've had gotten divorced and, you know, I had a alimony obligation that was going to be over this year in 2020. And of course, before COVID, I had grand plans of now where, you know, that financial stream was, where's that going to go next? What is that going to be a springboard, a leap, a leap to, and uh, COVID kind of threw a curveball with that. I mean, I, I wanted to not change what I was doing. I wanted to add to what I was doing and I wanted it to be intentionally um, starting to figure out how to 
craft, design, build, fund uh, adventure playgrounds in the United States. Oh. That's that was what I wanted to do uh, this this year after after the alimony obligation was over. And uh, so, needless to say, that got put on hold. Uh, uh, and and I think I I think I mourned that a lot more than I realized. Like like some of the funk that I was in for a while this year during COVID. I think it was not because of COVID. It's because I didn't realize how excited I was to start pursuing that. And so, so in other words, you were moving on from where you were. Uh, no, I was adding to, I was adding, adding to, to yeah, I had, I, I mean, I had no, I, and I have no, for, for clarification, I, I have no intention of not doing what I'm currently doing. I wanted to start adding and to me that was adventure playgrounds pop-up play kind of environments you know maybe a couple brick and mortar places but um that that's that was my coming next you know in addition to what I'm currently doing Uh and I still would like to you know and there's a part of me that sometimes occasionally I'm like fuck it throw caution to the wind let's do it anyway you know people who want to show up will show up we'll wash our hands a lot we'll wear masks let's figure it out let's get something let's get something started and and see where it goes don't let this be don't let covid don't let 2020 be why you don't do it and then you know so i go back and forth you know like do it anyway and screw it or you know let's just wait it out and know that it's still there. It's still going to be an option. So professionally, you still like to present to people and share your knowledge? Oh, 100%. You still want to do that? Oh, yeah. To, Why? I, mean, I, I see my role, as I've said, as, as a connector. And, and I really, I mean, I used to not joke, but I used to say when I was on the plane so much, I mean, of course I'm not now, but you know, when you're on a plane four five, six times a week, the reality is, is you can read a lot of stuff. You can read a lot of books. You can read a lot of articles, excuse me. And I knew that a lot of that was stuff that people needed to get into their hands, but not in a snotty way, but like, how can I share this? How can I, and, 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 and I have the ability to if, if something is going to change my practice, it enters into my, my language right away. So like if something was really, really important, I would find that, that the time from reading it to when I heard it come out of my mouth and start to be assimilated as a part of the workshop or the material, like it's quick, it's quick if it's, if it's meaningful, you know? And so I would watch how the workshops would evolve, but getting people in touch with anything that allows them to feel that they are what making better places for the kids, more relevant, not even better relevant that I always come back relevant, real, meaningful, not cute, not fun, not always happy, but real. Why do you care about children? <laughs> uh, cause probably honestly, cause I was, I was cared for growing up. You know, I don't, I don't have some really deep philosophical aha about that. I, I mean, it was second nature. It was just what was done. And uh-huh. so to me, it's just what you do. So it's not some sort of global, cosmic, universal philosophy. Well, I like, think. I'm going to make the world better. 
No, I, I don't think I've ever really, I, I, I think if I, if I agreed that I, I think that would be me just saying, oh, maybe that's something that people think I should be thinking, but no, I don't, I don't <laughs> think I have, I don't think I have that. I think it's more, more pop-up-y even before I knew that phrase, like a pop-up, it's like what right here, what, what can I be doing right here? Because the truth is, is that what you do right here starts to have a global impact. But if we're, mm-hmm. if we're to me, being overly focused on the global, but ignoring what's going on in front of you, that's always been an issue for me. To me, that's like an inconsistent thing. Uh-huh. You know, we're, we're worried about, you know, we, we, we don't, we don't let the kids use macaroni in the sensory tub because somebody somewhere doesn't have a food. And I'm like, well, what are you doing right here for the people in this program who don't have food? You know, like, I, I, I think that that allows you to hide behind, you know, a bunch of, of, of maybe slogans, but you're not actually putting your money where your mouth is. And that uh-huh. bothers me. Uh-huh. Did the early 90s Lisa Murphy, who was doing family child care, was there a vision of the Lisa Murphy, of the, let's say, 2017 Lisa Murphy, who's uh, running around the U.S. and Canada um, presenting in theaters that she 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 loves and hotel conference rooms as well um but but the, the oh you, the carpets oh the carpet w- did, <laughs> did the you carpet. envision turning into that that person at this point or wasn't that part of wasn't that a thought yet it, it it really honestly wasn't a thought until dallas i mean and most of you all know the the dallas story which that happened while i was doing family child care so i think and what, I think, what year uh, that was 96. 96 was when Dallas happened. 97 was when I started the company. So definitely at that point, I realized like, like maybe not international, but I knew that I could, I knew that I could go out there and talk about issues and things related to early childhood. I knew I could go talk shop with people. And I knew just because of my style that I was good at it. So, you know, let's be honest, right? If you have quality content and you're a decent presenter, you know, chances are that you could maybe do something with that. Um, so, so before that's we where go, I, would, I would make it pre and post Dallas pre Dallas. So let, let's do a, a thumbnail version of the, of the Dallas story. Um, oh, I can do a thumbnail. I've practiced. just because just so we have it, have it here in the, uh, the historical record. It's also in the playbook, right? In the historical record. Um, because you want to record this before I'm dead. Um, <laughs> well, it'd be much harder to do after. Right. Um, so in 1996, I was doing family childcare. I was in San Diego. I went to my very first big conference, NAEYC, right? The National Association for the Education of Young Children. It was in Dallas. I fly there. I'm all excited. Long story, thumbnail, bullet point. The presenter didn't show up. There was 700 people in the room. She was supposed to do a workshop about 101 new ideas for your sensory table tub. And she didn't show up. And I was sitting next to a chick from Colorado and I was like, I could do this. And there was a nacy person up on the stage. Like, we don't know where your presenter is. And people were like, ah, shoot, you know, like, oh, well, there's 20 other sessions. Let's go pick something else. And I was like, I could do this. And she's like, do what? And I'm like, I could get up there and talk about stuff to do with kids. And she looked at me and she said, I dare you. And uh, that was that. And I got up on stage and I facilitated a spontaneous improv workshop of activities for 700 some odd people. At the end, I got a standing ovation. They wanted to come tour my school, of which I did not have, and they wanted to buy a book. <laughs> like, and I'm like, I don't even have a handout, right? I'm not even <laughs> supposed to be here. I don't have a book. And uh, then I saw everybody just get like wicked, amazing 
excited. And I gave them my address and I don't remember doing that. And I only remember that I did because I got letters and every single letter that I received, I still have all of them was addressed to Lisa Murphy, the ooey gooey lady. And, you know, for those people who, especially nowadays are kind of keen on origin stories, you know, that's, that's mine. Um, I don't know where the people who wrote the letters got ooey gooey. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, for all I know, that was the title of the workshop or in the description. I don't, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah. And I, I, here's the reflection piece on that, that I often don't share in workshops because I kind of think it, you know, I, I get a little, like, I don't want to sound like a snot. But I, honest to God, came back to San Diego and I was like, if 700 people get that excited about something you made up, what if you planned something? Like, what if you actually <laughs> did your due diligence and, and, and investigated and figured out what the topics are? Not in any way implying that I'm the, you know, I'm the savior and I'm going to make it all better. Not at all. But just like, what's relevant? So like the, the key and the, the pattern and the repetition of the relevant and the real and the meaningful to me is, is, is seamless between the onstage and the workshop and working with children. Like there are, there are a couple, six, seven, eight nuggets that are 100% not only how I do school or, or engage with children, but how I engage with the people in the audience, right? That, that it's just, it's 100% the same. I think you know, workshopping is one big circle time. You know, it's like one big event. And so you read the crowd, you read the audience. If I had a good idea, but they weren't there, then you modify it. You know, it reminds me of the the little Lisa who was woken up and had to take care of the family (laughs) childcare. And (laughs) it looks like you've been doing this all your life. And I have. And you know, what's interesting, Tamar, is that I think, sometimes when folks have that realization, it can be tricky for them or they feel like there's been something that's been deprived or that they were doing that at the expense of something else. Like, like that, that I've been so busy taking care of others that I've never taken time for myself. No, I can can say very honestly that, that I know that's not actually, that's not actually what I meant. What I, what I mean is, is that your mother knew that she could trust you, just like mm. that, uh, your babysitting Carol. person, mm-hmm. Carol, right? There was something about you that was, um, you know, some kind of strength in you. I can do this. I want to do this. And I'm capable. There's something about you from very young, for whatever reason, that's up to you to work out or not. Um, but there's something about you that you could go from that to that to that to that to that and now playgrounds, right? You just, you've just got it. <laughs> Do you know why? Where you got it from? Oh, that's. I think. Uh, I think uh, it's just me, but it was nurtured by certain people in my life. If that makes sense, it was seen as a strength to some people. It was seen as a not a weakness, but of a um, a, a detriment by others. I mean, I've always been told that I was, you know, confident and assertive um, when the situation calls for it, you know? And that was a good thing. In my brain, it was a good yes. thing. Yes. You know, my, my grandma, my dad's mom was really a strong personality. And I remember taking pride when people said that I reminded her of, reminded them of her, um, you know, but then you'd hear, 
other people talking like talking shit about her like oh she's such a bitch and she always has to be the boss and and they're like oh shit you're comparing you know a 13 year old to this you know so I don't know yeah well I I, I, I think women have that problem like when when they're assertive and confident that they get insulted very often and well, well, some people were nurturing that assertiveness in you when you when you told them straight up that yes, we do do Play-Doh in the uh, closing room. Um, they they didn't take that the right way, and that's why you got your ass fired a couple weeks later. So I mean, there's there's been that good and take, but you've been lucky enough, it sounds like, to have have enough people nurture that that it didn't get snuffed out because no. I, I think that might be something that just culturally we we snuff out in too many people mm-hmm. if they have mm-hmm. it. Well, and I think it, it assisted when I did decide to, you know, start the company. Um, I think that that helped, you know, when you own and even even doing family childcare before I officially started the company company, you know, there is a confidence that comes out of running the show. You know, there isn't there isn't somebody above you who can tell you that you're not allowed to do something just because they don't like it. You know, I mean, it, it it'll and and I think it, it was a uh, owning your own business whether family childcare, my own company now, it, it allows you to have a lot of freedom, yet also a lot of responsibility, right? You, you know, so you still got to know what you're doing and why you're doing it and who it's for. It can't just, just be because you want to. I mean, it can be just because you want to, but there's always going to be repercussions. There's always going to be, you know, people say that it's a choice. There is, but there's always consequences of the choice. And that doesn't mean that it's good or bad. It just means you got to be willing to accept all, all of it, right? So yeah, I had a lot of freedom as a family childcare provider. I didn't have somebody breathing down my throat telling me that kids couldn't play outside for four hours a day. And it allowed me then the opportunity to professionally start doing a little bit more digging and figure out why is this working? Why is this working? I have no behavior problems. I'm going to support group meetings with uh, the other family child care providers and, and they're bitching all night about this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, how come I don't have this? And so I was so curious as to what was happening in the environment that it, it, it instigated the deeper work, the investigative piece. This is working. I want to know why. And that was when, you know, I just started reading everything and, everything because I wanted to know why it's working and then I wanted to start talking with people about how if you really are that upset about the behaviors that are happening then try this you know and then they're like well I don't want to try that well then stop bitching (laughs) so I I I feel very fortunate um, family child care was when I started to a put my money where my mouth is B started really investigating the work of early childhood, you know, but yet on the surface, it might, Oh, that's the lady that lets the kids play all day. Yeah. And that's where I started learning the language that now I know people appreciate that I am able to share with them. But, you know, you didn't wake up knowing all these words. You didn't wake up knowing who these people were, who the theories are. You know, my first couple years of teaching were horrible. Not horrible. They, in, in retrospect, right? Because it's before we knew better. And we all like to chat about that occasionally. Of what The, the stuff I did before <laughs> I knew better. But right, you, right. You take that as, as... That's a nice book, by the way. That's a nice <laughs> book title. 
stuff yeah. I knew and the stuff I did before I knew better. That is mm-hmm. fabulous. G- mm-hmm. Give us an example of a thing that you did before you knew better back in the day. Oh, I had a whistle. I mean, I was a, I was a fish. I was a, like in the goldfish syndrome. You know, the poopy face laminated lady that I was paired up with scared me to death. And so I adopted what she did, even though I knew it wasn't right. I had a whistle. I had a lineup line. You know, I made kids sit crisscross applesauce, one, two, three, eyes on me on the, on the carpet, <laughs> hands in your lap. You know, I, 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 I said some of that stupid stuff of like, uh, I love the way that Mary Beth is sitting, you know, and you don't, you don't, huh? Did you do calendar? Oh, of course you did calendar until, you know, you realized you didn't need to do calendar. And, and, and that was kind of that pre and post. Sorry. The the dog is barking. Hey, um, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know, but then when you know, you're like, oh man. So if, if, if present day Lisa could go back to working with laminating Lisa and just kind of tap her on the shoulder one day and, and say, hey, I got some advice for you, what would that be? What would the advice look like? Um, sorry, I'm distracted by the fact that the dog is about ready to jump through the patio and attack the guy who's putting the fertilizer on the, the lawn. I would... I would tell her to, to calm down, you know, to, that you don't have to be the boss of all of this, that your, your job is going to get easier if you relinquish some of this control, but not easy. And this is where I, I, I pause nowadays and I clarify, not easier in the sense that you're not doing your job. You know what I'm saying? Like being neglectful, but, but you're not going to be using up all of this energy trying to micromanage and control stuff that at the, at the end of the day doesn't matter. Asking myself, I would, I would probably share with her the first question, which I landed on later, but I would have, I, and, and you know what? And sorry, I'm getting, my brain is getting ahead of myself. I don't think I would wanted to have learned this any sooner because the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, right? Sure. You, you, you can't acknowledge it. But when Cindy said to me, Cindy Scrimger, another one on the, on the list, she is still alive. She said, what is the worst possible thing that's going to happen? Uh-huh, lovely. You know, and, and what is the worst possible thing that's going to happen? Cindy, Cindy was the first one. I mean, I, I use the Star Wars reference, but she, she, I, took, I took my first step into a, a larger world because of Cindy. Cindy walked in when I was, I didn't know she was hired to work with me. Stupid, but I didn't know. And she watched me try and, you know, herding three-year-olds in a line because nobody was going outside until I got a straight line and I could wait here all day and you're only wasting your own time. And she walked right up to me and she's like, what are you waiting for? And I'm like, well, I'm waiting for these kids to line up because nobody's going outside and I'm going to wait here all day. And she said, what are they, three? And I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, who are you? Like, why are you here? And she said, why don't you just open the door and let them go? And I was like, shit. (laughs) Like, I had never thought that that was even an option. And she became my mentor. And she is who led me back to what I had forgotten. I had drifted, right? I, I knew that I wanted to be like Miss Mary. I knew I wanted to create that kind of spot. I knew I wanted kids to have that same feeling that I remember having, but I drifted because I was in environments that didn't value that or said they valued it, but they didn't really value it. And Cindy kind of was the springboard for me to, to 
think about what is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And then you realize when you filter everything through that, you realize that you've been putting out a lot of little fires that really was a waste of your own energy. And then you save up all of that energy. And now you're, you're not exhausted by lunch because you've been micromanaging the Play-Doh. You have all of this energy. So then when after lunch, there is something that really requires your attention, your, your, your bucket, so to speak, you're, you're still full. But if you use it all up, micromanaging circle time and snack time and center time, you're exhausted. So, so with one sentence, you give somebody a different option. What? Exactly. Change the world. I've, yeah. I've, I think if I, I could do a timeline of, of like, just like what you said, one, one statement that like pivoted my entire career, the next phase of the career. And I actually think probably most of us could. Ten, like 10 sentences that changed my path or that guided my path, that kind of thing. Um, so Lisa post standing ovation at, uh, at this, uh, that this, at this presentation, how long after that was the, was the first paid gig? Um, that was November of 96. I did, uh, started the company in 97. I did six workshops in 97. Um, now defined paid, but I, I was, I mean, I started, um, I, I, I put in the proposals like we did, right? You did, you just did what you did. You mm-hmm. filled out the proposals, you got accepted. Um, I wasn't getting people yet calling me to do gigs. So I did a couple of the local AEYC conferences and had people come up at the end and like, do you do staff training? And again, theater, I'm like, yep. I had no idea what I was talking about. Do you do consulting? Yep. And I said yes to absolutely everything. And then I reached out to some other mentors. I was on the board for the Family Child Care Association. So I called them like, what do consultants do? What do you charge? Like, what is expected? How should I start framing this? And they were very willing to share. So the first paid gig was that next year. Um, you know, but then you, you, you start cutting your teeth on that. You know, like you learn what works, what doesn't work. Yeah. So I, so I got to ask, how, how did you set your, how did you set your fee? Did they, did they have something? Here's what we pay. Or did you set your fee? I, I set my fee. How, how, um, did and you, I, how did you come up with that number? I called um, Cheryl Yusko, who has since passed. And I said, uh, this is what I've agreed to do. Can you share with me what good the going rate might be? And uh, I still have all of this historical documentation. I charged a hundred dollars an hour. Um. <laughs> And, and that's what I did. And so, yeah, that was just it. That was the starting spot. And then I mm-hmm. worked everything out from there. Kind of like what I did during COVID, right? You jump in, it might be kind of clumsy, might be kind of raw and, and not smooth around the edges yet, but it's a starting spot. It's, it's something, it's something, it, it, it starts. You can always make the midstream adjustments. And for what it's worth, for the capturing, for the posterity, so to speak, I honestly think that that is why the company is still in business is because of the flexibility which again is something that is essential when you're working in the classroom, making midstream adjustments, not getting your ego all wrapped up. Yeah, there's days where you get bruised a little bit, but you don't let that um, over-determine the next step. Pivoting, midstream adjustments, that didn't work, what can we change? And not seeing that as a reflection on your ability long-term, like to, to let it be a little Teflon-y and roll off. You know, just because they didn't like that doesn't mean that, you're no longer a good speaker. 
but that topic wasn't ready, right? Or that topic, like the, the only topics that have never worked are the ones that I thought I should be talking about. I have read my cues and taken indicators from the audience since day one. When I started to see the same questions getting asked all over the United States and in Canada, I'm like, hmm, maybe that's a topic we need to do a little bit of a deeper dive in, which is very, very different than this is what I want. I mean, it's, 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 it's the same thing. It's circle time. It's the analogy. I've got my list. I'm going to push this down your throat and then wonder why it doesn't work. How come I'm getting barfed on? Well, because you're pushing it down their throat for crying out loud. <laughs> and I, I have always seen that presenting is the same thing. The other thing I want to say is that one of the, talking about the, the, you know, the 10 sentences that have changed your career or whatever, is I read an, a little article in, I think it was Good Housekeeping way thousand years ago. And I'm gonna not quote it properly, but you'll get the spirit of it. And it was a little sidebar column. It wasn't even an article. It was just a little insert, like a text box on the side. And it said that somebody had done a study where they asked people in an old folks home, in a convalescent home, if they could do one thing differently, what would it be? And 92% of the respondents said that they would have taken more risks. And that is why I started the company. Because and so that. with the company and with the, uh, the speaking gigs, were you still, family childcare was still happening at this time? Yeah, or I did, you- yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, family childcare happened in numerous environments. Uh, um, I started subbing, I started bringing people in. I mean, and that kind of went hand in hand with starting the speaking part of the company, which was, you know, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna get you to share time with me, if you're gonna give me 90 minutes of your life, if you're gonna give me a half day on a Saturday, what I tell you better be timely, relevant and real and meaningful. So I started subbing all over San Diego County just to kind of get a lay of the land. What are people struggling with? What are people thinking about? What are the issues? What are we, you know, what, what's going on? What's, wh- I had to gather data, right? I had to gather fuel for the fire, had to figure out what, what, what's the word on the street. And then that's what happened. <laughs> so how, how long did you do, did you do both? Do what? Um, like, well, how long was the, was the, the birth of Uwe until you were, you were done doing on the ground in the classroom stuff, either the subbing or the family child care. 2010? 2000 and, well, okay, it, actually probably 12, 2012. Because because uh, though I was doing family child care in numerous environments, I was um, uh, I had the child care center in Rochester, and then I was a part of a three year grant project where I was spending every day in classrooms out in Tucson, which that that happened after. Unfortunately, we had to close the school because of the first crisis economically. Blah, 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 blah. But um, yeah, so probably I've been not providing full time care since twelve. And that was your that was the center you opened in Rochester. Correct. The last- last iteration of that and so what what brought you to make the jump to to opening that program because that that's a that's kind of a big jump too from from doing subbing and family child care to opening a center-based program um i don't have any regrets tamar but that was that was a business decision that i did not make Uh i i i I would not have done that i that that was a, a coercion who made that uh, I, decision? Oh, Tom Murphy did. Yeah. And uh, 
at, at the time I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm running the roads, I'm doing the workshops, you know, you're going to kind of be the boss of this. It was just too big. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to paint a negative picture. It was just, it was too big. So I was the always, whole, the whole, the whole idea was a, a Lisa Murphy philosophy program where Lisa Murphy was basically a consulting, um, but not the, well, a consultant, but not there doing, not their most day. I mean, you weren't, you weren't like at those center that actually manifested. That is correct. And then, then, I mean, there, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a whole story in and of itself. That was, uh, there was a a little bit more behind the scenes drama there than, than most people realize. And it's, it's not really a crucial piece of it, but there were, there were behind the scene things that were happening that caused the direction to kind of pivot and change unexpectedly uh, numerous times. And then with the smack of the economy crashing and with the location of where this particular center was. And, and like I said, it was too big. Um, We just didn't make it through 2007, 2008, nine. We just didn't, we just didn't make it. We had not been open long enough Mm -hmm. to, to kind of weather, weather that storm. I always wanted to start something small and grow out of it, right. Have that logical progression. And instead, I mean, it was just full jump in and it was, it was, um, it was good and it could have been different, but it was, you know, while it was there, it was, it was fine. So it looks like you've you didn't have a problem ever taking risks. Yeah, but Jeff can speak to the fact that um, sometimes the process part of it, I can get a little overly um, worried. I'm overthinking, you know. But 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 at the end of the day, the the risking piece, um, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to say it's easy, but I'm not afraid of it. You know, because I've you know the the saying of like you know what's the worst possible thing that's going to happen. I mean that guides me. You know, mm-hmm. and and I've been on the other side of well, okay, you could lose your house, okay, done that. You know what I'm saying? I I I I'm like Tigger. <laughs> I mean, I have a I have a bounce backness that you know, if it if if the shit did all hit the fan and you lost it all, uh, you can build yourself back up again. And I've done that a couple times. So and, and that that postcard oh, that that attitude that that well, let's give it a try. Attitude has has panned out for you more than it's flopped? Yes. Yes. And, and, and I think honestly, that's why I was a little, and, and maybe that was the universe. Maybe that's why I'm not starting um, the addition of what I'm wanting to do next. You know, maybe that's why that's one of my, maybe, cause maybe that would not have fared as well. And so maybe, I mean, I, this sounds a little airy fairy, but I, I know that I am protected. I have been, um, uh, uh, that's the word I think of. I, I know that, that I am being looked out for Who, and by whom I'm not sure, uh-huh. you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm just fringe enough to say that it's my grandma and it's, you know, the people who have gone before, um, that it's the universe, you know, that, that I, you know, when I look back on some of the situations I've been in, some of the, some of the travel experiences that I've had, you know, and to know that, you know, I'm still here, <laughs> that. You know, I, I, is that the grandma that you're like? Oh yeah, totally. I know she watches out for me. She doesn't come to me in my dreams. She goes to my sister in my sister's dreams. And sometimes I get jealous of that, but, um, but I know I, I sometimes at gigs though, seriously, I'll be like, I don't know who's on duty today. Like I'll say that out loud. I don't know who's on duty today, but somebody here needs to hear this and I'll say something 
And then that person will come up at the end and be like, oh, like that was for me. And I'm like, okay, because somebody was on duty. I mean, I've joked that sometimes Maria Montessori's up there talking to me in Italian and, and I say <laughs> something, you know, and I, and I can feel it. And I know that sounds a little fringy, but I'm, I believe in that. I, I know that, that I am, as you said, standing, I, I've, I've been lifted up by other people. And I think some of them I've never met. Um, I think when you are really open to sharing what come what comes in, I'm I'm willing to share. And sometimes I don't, you know, I don't know where it came from, but you know, I listen to that voice in my head, especially when I'm doing workshops. Uh-huh. And I and I, and I'm okay with saying that. You know, somebody here, you're like, I don't know where this is coming from. Somebody here must need this. What would you do differently, Lisa? <laughs> what would I do differently? What's left? Um, I think I have a couple more books in me and, uh, uh, as much as I really wish I didn't, but I think I do. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would like to have a little place. I would like to have a place where kids could come and play. Not a child care, not a, not a caregiving, you know, like child care kind of mentality, but a, a, a place to come and play, like a destination place to come and play. I'd love to somehow be involved in the pop-up play, the adventure play grounds. Um, I, I, here's something that is uh, an older and wiser Lisa, though. Older and wiser Lisa. Younger, uh, younger Lisa would think that she had to be the boss of it. Older, wiser Lisa is realizing that you can be very supportive but not need to be the one doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know? That, that uh, you know, I don't need to be the one out there doing it, but I can be somebody who is supporting the people who are out there doing it, if that, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly in mind. <laughs> well, like way back in the day, I thought for a while, for my 29th birthday to myself, I wanted to, um, I bought a violin because I wanted to play a fiddle like those Irish girls. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I just thought that, you know, because I'm me, you know, I'd, I'd wake up after two lessons and I could run around barefoot on a stage and I'd sound like that woman. And I realized, and I actually, it was, a, it was an aha to me. My husband, my ex-husband, right? He was like, really? You're just now realizing this? But I looked at him, we were in a pub and I'm like, you know what? I'm never going to be able to play like that. I'm too, it's, I'm too late. I said, but I bet I could give them some money. You know, like I can support them. I don't need to be the one on stage playing the fiddle. Yeah. Yeah. But you can support the people who do. And yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of that being supportive, uh, you've mentioned quite a few mentors over the years. How are you, how are you paying that forward? I mean, you've got, I mean, obviously the books and the presentations and, and, uh, and the podcast and all that kind of stuff, but are you doing, are you, are you feeling, an inclination or urge to do more one-on-one type stuff of kind of things like that? Or is your, is your focus speaking to that bigger audience? I think uh, again, it's, it's organic. It's the midstream adjustments, you know, out of COVID has come people who are like one-on-one, you know, with the zooming and that not being so foreign any longer. um, You know, I, I think the platform allows for, again, whatever the audience is needing, you know, um, I, I think a lot about what comes, who's coming next, you know, which I think before COVID, we had those conversations a lot of times. Who are the next speakers? Who are the next people out there? Who's going to be keynoting? You know, what, what are we, what are we going to be talking about? Are we going to continue to be banging our heads against the wall with the same issues we've been banging our heads against the wall when we all know what needs to happen, but we're not willing to do it. Um, 
you know, I, I, I think having the opportunity for deeper discussion is something that the technology is providing opportunities for, you know, if that makes sense. Um, I've been doing some like series work. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but like, you know, now because of COVID and Zoom, you know, like a group will book me to do five every other week, 90 minute conversations with their staff. Like that never could have happened before COVID, you know, or it could have, but they couldn't have afforded it, you know? So I, 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 I think maybe more smaller, intimate conversations are being allowed to happen because of the current situation. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and to me, that's one of the silver linings, right? Because it, 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 it wouldn't even have been something that would have crossed my radar. Yeah. Um, prior based based on the path you've traveled over the past what decade multiple decades 30 years 20 well 24 20, years of ui of, over of UI 30, plus the years before that so 30 some um, on. three plus decades in the field how i don't want to make you feel old but that's a that's a that's a that's a hike that's a uh, long time your, your path it's, has been it's a more, i've spent more time more than half of my life doing this job doing this yeah. work and so, so based on that, what are your thoughts about how people who come into this field are being prepared to work in this field? I don't, well, <laughs> this, this goes back to the, uh, the, when are, when's Jeff and Lisa going to start their own training program? You know, um, they, they're not playing. Not there. I want to be there. Well, you'll be the guest lecturer. You'll be the artist in resident. Um, but they're not. And I, and, you know, and I never really stopped to think about that, Jeff, until you started bringing it up during the, during the podcasting is, you know, how many people are graduating from a program and uh, have not taken one play class or where it's still over focused on, on behavior management or still very behaviorally oriented. And I, I get asked a lot, not so much anymore right now, because, you know, you're not on the road so much to get the back of the room, you know, after the workshop one-on-one Q and A that you'd sometimes get from people. But, 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 but one of the, I mean, there's another top 10 list, the top 10 questions that you get asked after every single gig. And one of them is what, what should I do for my undergrad? Where should I go? What should it be in? You know? And it's like, you know, gun to your head, child development or psychology. And I'm like, well, you know, in all honesty, I, I use my human services and counseling degree daily. Um, can't say that I do with the early childhood master's degree, you know, it's, you know, so to me, but then, then there's another layer of, of, of inquiry, right? Is it a psychology degree that's still very Skinner based, still very behaviorally based? Um, But, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I think the, the social emotional piece, the psychology piece, and Tamar knows this about me too. I mean, I, it's, it's been a question for me too, is what, what draws you here? What's the common denominator of people who are attracted to this, to this profession? Um, and, you know, I, it sounds super soundbitey, Jeff, but it's true. I hire for attitude. I train for skill. I can teach you how to do this job if you want to be here. And that's not to take away from the duties, the responsibilities, the obligations of the people who are in our profession. It's acknowledging that if you want to be there, and you could flip that to any profession. If you don't know. No, not really, because in early childhood, it's very, very intense and it's emotionally intense and not everybody can do that. Well, I agree 100%. But if you want to be there, I would, I would venture to guess that you'd be more willing and able to push through some of the muck and the mire that does yeah. get poked 
Because, yeah. you know, I talk to people about their isms. You don't even know you have these isms. You did not even know that nose picking bothered you until you got the job in the toddler room. There would have been no way for you to disclose that in the interview because you didn't even know. Right. But if you want to be here, my sense is that you're more inclined to investigate that. Is it what's bothering you about that? Is it bothering you to the degree where we need to put you in another room? Because the kids are going to be picking their nose, whether you like it or not. That's mm-hmm. what I mean by this is that yes. you want to be there, but you could show up with a master's degree, a doctorate and an attitude and a chip on the shoulder. And you're not a benefit to anybody in that program. Right. 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 So I, 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 I think you learn how to teach while you're teaching. I, you know, I, I, I never let school get in the way of the education. You know, the, the, the day you wake up and you think you got this figured out is the day that you probably should quit or at least take a break. And if you're still in the classroom, that's the year that, you know, the universe gives you triplet Jonathans and, you know, that'll <laughs> smack you off that high horse pretty damn fast. <laughs> yeah, what? I think we should open our own little training college. That would, that, that, like, yeah. Uh, let's do uh, person uh, development college. What did you say? Let's call it a person development college. Person development. A couldn't, be, couldn't, couldn't it be a pub? <laughs> those, are, those are where the best conversations happen. They are. They, I mean, and, and, and they always have been. The in-between conversations, you know? <laughs> Especially when you're in between, you're walking between the halls at a big conference and you're discussing with somebody what you just heard. You know, how are you going to actually start implementing it, executing it, what do you believe in, what do you not so in one of those conversations, Lisa Murphy sitting around a, uh, a hotel bar. We'll make it a Marriott. You're sitting in the Marriott bar after you just- No, Hilton. A- it has to be a Hilton. It has to be a Hilton. Okay. It has to, you're sitting around a Hilton, uh, the bar, the Hilton Hotel um, after, a, after a big presentation. Um, and a young person, her first big conference, listen to Lisa Murphy. She's been in the field for a year and a half. She's got an early learning degree, whatever that means. What one piece of advice for for maintaining a prolonged journey in this field would you give to this person? You got to know why you do it. Why are you, why are you here? Pay, tell me your story. Being able to articulate the story, I think, is very, very important because I think it allows you to come back to center when you've drifted. So that would be the advice is to be able to articulate your story. Why are you here? Why did you choose this? What is the why behind your work? Cause that will guide you. That becomes almost your North star. It allows you to keep yourself in check when you start to feel that you've drifted or that you've, you know, like we've all been guilty of the fishbowl con- com- complex where I start to take on the mannerisms or the behaviors, which might be good or bad, with the people that I'm spending all the time with, the chameleon effect. If you're always and, in proximity to a poopy face. And so how do we how do we get from that place where you're just kind of pasting on other people's philosophies and thoughts and positions on things, pasting those onto yourself? I, I mean, that's a place we've all been to to truly I don't know, internalizing the bits and pieces of those things that are, that are really who you are, because I think there is a, that's, that's Jeff, a fantastic question. And, um, you know, what I just realized my answer to that 
is because I was gifted, blessed, whatever, took the risk, I became my own boss. And I was then, I then had the time to start playing with that, figuring that piece out. But if you're always working for somebody else, you know, is there's going to be, I would imagine some degree of that always happening. It, and it doesn't mean it's a bad thing you because you, you might be able to, to take off some of those bits that you've pasted onto yourself that have been given to you from somebody else because some of them might be authentic and be accurate and be appropriate. But I think, but, but I, if, if your job is putting into practice somebody else's vision, if you are not 100% aligned with that same vision, there's always going to be compromise to one degree or the other. You know, like I, I learned in the, the, the grant project out in Tucson was when I really realized, because, you know, we, we say we know stuff, but then we're provided an experience where we're like, oh, you can't make anybody want it. And so I was a part of this amazing project and I realized halfway through it that I could spend hours with the people providing care, but at the end of the day, everything I was offering and suggesting was in a, was extra. They were 100% legal in regard to what licensing expected. So everything that I was adding was above and beyond. And so unless, unless the, the impetus to really re, refocus came from management, the owner, it, it, we were spinning our wheels. And halfway through the project, I said to the coordinators, I said, you know, your money to me as a consultant would be better served sending me to the Capitol and lobbying for better licensing regs because they're, they're not going to change their practice because they're, they're, not, they're, not being, they're not feeling called to do more than what's legal. I mean, I, I don't know what, if I was really had a point with that, maybe, but maybe just other than you, you can't, you can't so, make anybody want it. I mean, so you have that, to choose. That's, that's one of the big issues. That's one of the biggest problems also with the teacher education programs, because you can impart all this wonderful knowledge and then they go out and there's, they have to then adjust to what you call the poopy face, right? Um, over and over again and it's it's that's so difficult well I think you lose it's like it's like a horcrux you're like losing a little bit of your soul every time that yes. happens and at some point you wake up and you realize holy crap this is not why I became a teacher or this is not right. like I've, I've sold my soul to every student teaching assignment every internship every whatever along the way that I've I've forgotten my why yes so how am I going to intentionally now give myself an opportunity to recalibrate and either get back in touch with it and start to be more mm, intentional and mindful of putting my money where our mouth is? Like if I really do believe that children are entitled to a play-based experience, but I continue aligning myself with, with environments that don't do that, at some point I need to shit or get off the pot, pardon my French. But you know, you, you, you can't keep saying you want it but keep putting yourself in environments where it's not happening. But yeah. then I can also argue that sometimes that there's no, there is a choice, but there's not a choice. 
You know, I'm in a, I'm with the community I'm in. There's three centers. If I want to yeah. do this job, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta put a little bit of my, my soul on pause in order to, to do this. Um, you know, and, and directors who say the same thing, Lisa, I want to have people who want to be here. Um, but I got three people who didn't show up after lunch yesterday. Yep. And I know that licensing is going to be here next week. So I'm having to make these, you know, not, not what I want to make decisions. Yep. I don't know. Is it a, is it a vicious cycle? It is. And I, I think that's why I focus on relationships, right? I mean, I, I think play-based is ex- extremely important. Don't get me wrong. But as long as you can have a, a quality relationship with children, even in those terrible environments, you're not going to be abusing children. Let's put it that 100%. way. 100%. Because everything's know. built on the foundation of the relationships. 100%. Yeah. In fact, yeah, right. I was actually in a conversation yesterday with a, a lady who who is kind of struggling. And, and this is, I, I don't want to get on the slippery slope. I want to bring it up to the general, the, the similarity here. Uh, wearing masks with the kids, not wearing masks, mask, no mask, mask, no mask. And I actually very similar said to her that, at the end of the day, it's kind of like when we used to say things like all of the four-year-olds will know how to count to a hundred, like in and of itself, like, okay, whatever, not the hell I'm going to die on. But you know, is, is that, is that really an out of line expectation or is the method in which we attempt to meet the goal, what needs to be investigated? And I use that as an example, at the end of the day, mask, no mask, mask, no mask. That's, that's a distraction. How are we looking to enforce it? How is that happening? You know, a teacher running around saying, get your mask, get your mask, get your mask, get your mask. (laughs) No, that's going to do, that has the potential to do more psychological damage than just having an expectation that the mask is being worn. So to your point, Tamar, 100%. So because the relationship piece, and I've even gone so far lately as to say that, that I'm worried that relationships is becoming a, 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 a sound, a buzzword. A, a buzzword. Thank you. Yeah. And, and that we're draining it dry. So, so how specifically, and, and this is what I'm saying on the zoom workshops, like right now, like, how do I know what right. would I see? What behaviors, actions, language, what would I be bearing witness to in this space for me to see that you believe what's at the heart and soul of that poster that you have hanging up in the classroom? And that yeah. requires a reconciliation. And I know we talk about this with Heather a lot on her podcast, a reconciliation of the teaching versus caring piece, you know, and being okay with realizing that the caring slash relationship piece is at the heart of what we would call effective teaching, that they're, that they're inseparable, that the what teaching thing. hat is not better than the caring hat. What an enormously important profession. I'm honored I mean, to be a part of it and, and, and all the, the different spokes of it. Um, the complexity, yeah. It is. Lisa, you mentioned a minute ago recalibrating, and I was wondering for, for listeners what, what recalibrating looks like in, in your life. What's your, what's your process when you feel your, your need to do that? Is it something that you, you build into your, your life so that you're constantly doing that, or is it something you just feel, oh, I need to recalibrate, and then you go do a thing? What's the- I think it's, I think it's a mix of both. Um, um, yeah reading 
stuff like uh, challenging myself helps with that. What I meant by recalibrating, because sometimes it's very spontaneous. Like you might not, like you might've been engaging in a certain behavior, like just going through the motions. And then one day you go to do that same behavior and you're like, wait a minute, what am I doing? Um, so I think sometimes the need to recalibrate, the need to come back to center sometimes is very spontaneous like that. I think from a more intentional level, um, when I'm on my walks, man, when I'm walking and when I'm running, that's when my that's when I'm processing absolutely everything. Um, and then, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago on the Childcare Bar and Grill um, podcast, I, I mindfully sh- shut down in July and December typically and think and I reflect. I want to make sure that what I'm out there saying is still really not only what I believe in, but is that still what's grounded in the evidence and in the research? Did I, I want to make sure that I'm not just in the habit. I'm giving the dog the stink eye. I want to make sure that I'm not just in the habit of saying, you know, control the environment, not the children. Did that just become something that I say? Is that still at the heart of the message? Is that still valid? Do you still really believe that? The keys to the house, the keys to the car, you know, like some of the stories, some of the sound bites, the hashtags that people might associate with me and my message. I think it's crucial to intentionally reflect on that. And I think that sometimes helps with the recalibrating of, of readjusting, you know, is, is, do I need to shed? Is something needing to be shed? Is it no longer true? And, you know, Jeff and I have talked about that on many episodes, you know, the, the act of actually shedding an outdated dogma that that's hard. Well, we, we talk about it as, as breaking up. I mean, you're yeah. breaking up with a way of, of doing things with a belief and, and it can be, it can, I mean, be it's just like a breakup. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's emotional tor- turmoil in some, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a loss too. Very much so. Yeah. And I yeah. think this is this ongoing piece, like what we're talking about all right now. I think that's, that's like, it's like the area if Erickson stages like of applied just to, to people in early childhood education, I think this reflective piece is is a goal you know to, to get to that place where we're and it's so meta right we're thinking about how we think about our work thinking about the intention behind what we're doing and and what that's going to look like and being mindful of I don't know capturing what we believe in because it does capture the evolution and you know uh, and I'm, I'm I'm getting jumbled in too many words but sometimes at a gig especially now with it being like 90 minute zooms, you don't have the luxury of kind of bringing them up to speed, so to speak on your own personal evolution. So you come out the gate 90 minutes and it's like, Oh my God, like that could be amazingly overwhelming and intimidating perhaps, you know, cause you, you don't necessarily have the time. It's not that you're ignoring it or pretending that it didn't happen, but I might not really have the time right now to kind of paint you a picture of, of how I've changed my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there is an element of trust there, right? Of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, what's, what's that phrase? It's a phrase of that, that suspension of disbelief, right? So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to choose to believe that you have had your own evolution growth process, and I'm going to receive what you've said, even though I'm not going to get true evidence that it's happened. You know, I'm going to trust that you're not BSing me. 
Well, now now you're going to be able to send people to this uh, this recording uh, before before presentation, so they can they can get that background of of who you are. Um, on your you said as we got started that you had six pages of notes. You did you did you literally did more prep than either Tamara or I did. Um, <laughs> well, that's not entirely true. I did prep. I did prep. I sat. I thought. I wrote questions. I've been writing what you said. It's not true, Jeff. Okay, I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> um, anything we missed on your sheets, Lisa? Oh shoot! I don't know. Um, I always thought it was kind of interesting. Um, Sister Frances Ryan at DePaul. She actually studied with Piaget, so we were very, very Piagetian, and. Um, I have found that as I've gotten older, like it, it bothered me when he started coming under like attack on like his research and stuff. And I was like, wait, you must not. But then you go and you look and you're like, oh, yeah, well, that, I guess that that really probably wouldn't hold, you know, it's not up to snuff so much now. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because some of it is just true. Right. Um, right. I, I'm, I'm scrolling through. I know this is not good pod, but I think I think indirectly we've. We've talked uh, about it. Hearing myself talk about it, I realize that that it's true. What I've I've kind of said in passing through the years is that there's probably five, six, or seven key phrases, words that describe my work, and I think I heard them said today, like for the first time. Like I didn't give myself a writing project, you know, to sit down and think about that, but. Um, but, but you can, when you listen back to the podcast, you can maybe then summarize for yourself yeah, in that way. The I think the consistency piece has always, you know, been, um, I don't know. I I thoroughly love what I do. I love the flexibility piece. I love that I could sit in a room full of strangers and talk shop. You know, and I love that. And, and I don't think that that's self-serving or snotty sounding because to some degree, I mean, it's being prepared to do your job, right? Of knowing, knowing enough about the profession that you can just talk about it, right? That it doesn't always have to be a, a workshop or a teaching you about anything, just talking about talking about it um some of the stuff i wrote down is like little just silly anecdotes you know but like the you know like like nuggets from along the way but you know the first time i put a suit on to do a workshop because i thought because you were asked to do a keynote you had to wear a suit and this lady came up to me and she turned me around looked at me and she goes and she gave me that up up eyes you know the up one down and she said oh honey (laughs) She said, you don't, you don't need to wear a suit. And she said, you can take the, you can take the girl out of the goo, but you can't take the goo out of the girl. And she said, go knock them dead. And I did. And then I burnt the suit and I never wore a suit ever again. And uh, I developed a very, um, um, I don't know, just a different, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just me. I don't. You got right, your casual you know, uniform. I have my casual uniform and, you know, I think that the message overrides, you know, I've seen people with suits on who have no idea what they're talking about. Right. right? Right. You know, and I mean, and that's even in the classroom too, just because you you could slap a suit on poopy face doesn't mean she's now all of a sudden a a better, a better teacher. Um, I, 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 I have been told by people like we didn't realize 
Because I, I think one of my fears, if you want to get vulnerable for a quick second, but one of my fears early on was that I was going to get locked and loaded as the activity lady um, with Ui. And, and Jeff, Jeff kind of knows this evolution as well. I mean, I, that's why I wanted the company named Learning Through Adventure. You know, I wanted to, I didn't want to write a book. Everybody wanted me to write a book, write a book, write a book. And I'm like, I don't want to write a book because I don't want to get... I don't want to paint myself into a corner of only just being the activity lady. It was very important for me early on to figure out how to structure the birth and evolution and growth of a company without pigeonholing myself and, and uh, numerous back-to-back events where the coordinators were like, wow, you're a lot smarter than we realized, you know, and you're like, damn, or, or uh, we didn't realize that happened you brought- to me. Yeah. That happened to me with you. Ah, <laughs> uh huh, yeah, and because and, of because of the title, and I've got yeah. that sort of Lillian Katz kind of Britishness about me, that uh, ooey gooey. I mean, yeah. wow, uh -huh. but then I met you, and it was like, oh my gosh, the whole yeah. world. There's some there, there. There's yeah. some there, there. A lot and, of there, there. Thank you. And the tagline. Although I was told one time that the minute your company needs a tagline is the is the day you need to rebrand, but I've kept it anyway. Which is it's a silly name, but a serious message, and and I think for some that that helps because it is kind of abstract. And and even though I've tried to like not always be a, not associated, like not that it's a bad thing, but it's Uigui Uigui Uigui, and they'll it's announce a great name. It's great because everybody knows who it is, but sometimes folks only know that piece of it, and so. That's where I do have to kind of keep the ego very much in check because you want to stand from the rooftop occasionally and be like, I wrote other things. I can talk about other <laughs> things. There's more to me than the Google. But, you know, the people who need to figure that out are the people who need to figure it out. Um, one time there was a gentleman who was supposed to do a keynote at a big major conference and he got stuck in a snowstorm and his topic was math. And, uh, I mean, the, the, the coordinator came up to me and she's like, uh, you need to do a workshop about math. And I'm like, what? I don't, I don't do math. And uh, so th th they, they had this plan B, he was going to be televised in and then they wanted us, there was me and another woman, they, they want us to like recap it. And I'm like, man, so I'm sitting there while the man is doing like the Zoom. We're up on stage in front of thousands of people. I'm like writing notes. I'm like, oh my, and I, you know, they're like, hurry up and write a math workshop. You've got five minutes because the keynote starts in 10. And you're like, and the reason I'm sharing that is that it's that, that on the fly, right? You could still do it. Why? Because you can take the topic and still rise it up to be something more general that still comes back to the relevant, the real, the meaningful, you know, you can still lift it up and bring it back to the core tenets of working with children and families, right? Not to get all hyper-focused on, on the, the actual topic, but how do you forever find the connection back to creating environments that are relevant, real, and meaningful for the and, children who are growing and up? And that, that, um, ability to do that is so just you thank you when you were a child and your mother said get up you gotta take charge so now do math it's the same thing that it's grandmother rising. rising to the occasion 100 percent. one that that is i a love your great. grandmother oh i love her too <laughs> she used Lisa, to always say perhaps oh, perhaps 
perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. In, in, in all this, in all of your journey, has there ever been even even a, a flash across your head that I'm done, I'm going to go do something else? Jeff, I know I love that question. And here is my honest to God answer. There are days before COVID when you're on the road for 27 days in a row that being on the road can get a little overbearing. But honest to God, guys, the reason why I'm on the road never, ever, ever gets old because it's a different it's a different show every night. Mm -hmm. It might be the same topic. But because the audience is different, just like our classrooms, every day the kids are different. Every day the audience is different. So yeah, it might be the same quote unquote material, but it's not. Right. But it's right. not. So being right. on the road sometimes, another hotel room, another, you know. Carpet. <laughs> carpet, another <laughs> shitty meal in a hotel lobby bar. Yeah, that can get a little old. But, the, but why I'm out there, never. Tamar, is there anything in your notes we didn't get to? No, actually, <laughs> pretty much covered all my notes. And in fact, I've taken down some more. <laughs> well, well, Lisa Murphy, I, letting I, me... you, you turned out to be more of an onion than a banana to peel. There's so many layers <laughs> of you. <laughs> if, if anybody's looking for more Lisa Murphy, you can find her at ooeygooey.com. That's the website and ooeygooey on all the social media. Right. Ooeygooey lady, is that what most things are yeah. still? or? And uh, there are there are what half a dozen books out there or so. There's five books right five now. Books. That's that's Six pretty damn close good. to half a dozen. Um, yeah. And there's uh, over 670 episodes of the Child Care Bar and Grill podcast. If you if you need more Lisa Murphy in your life, um, any any parting thoughts from either of you before we wrap this one up? Well, thank you. This was fun. Well, I think, I mean, you're lying. Everybody likes talking about themselves, you know, and it's, it can be a little humbling, humbling, a little embarrassing, but you know, it was, it was kind of nice to kind of sit down. I mean, I just turned 51, right. It's, I felt like a, it was like a midpoint, uh, you know, up till this point, not a, not a, it's all over now. So we want you to reflect on it, but cause, cause I, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. There was a little bit like that. I'm like, Oh God, I hope this isn't, <laughs> doesn't curse me. Like, Oh, she did that one episode on, the, on the podcast. That's, that's it now. But I think it's, it provided, as I said to you, when we got started, my, my, my brain was on overload. My subconscious was just on fire last night and the opportunity to do some reflecting on where I've been and, and what might be next. And, you know, thinking about some of the stories that you forget about. But yeah, I appreciate this very much. Well, in 25 years, we'll come back and do episode two. We'll do the follow up. Okay. We'll do the follow up. <laughs> I so enjoyed hearing about your life, Lisa. Thank you. So enjoyed. I mean, I loved the stories about your childhood and about the, the acting. I got to know you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for letting me be the guinea pig. Hey, listeners, if uh, you made it to the end of this first episode, we really appreciate it. Um, this is, this is kind of what we're going to do. We're going to bring in people, maybe people that have written books and do presentations for a living, but also people that have spent their whole career just working in the classroom with children because those are all valuable stories to tell. And uh, we're, we're going to try to keep episodes rolling along and have these conversations, and, and hopefully you'll find it entertaining as well as something to, to reflect upon and learn from so we will be back soon with another episode thanks for tuning in bye-bye bye-bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye.